Jesus teaches us that after the commandment to love God with everything we have, the second commandment is to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And as Jesus emphasized that teaching even further with his own example, we are crushed, and I mean crushed, to find out that our neighbor that Jesus tells us to love includes our enemies. It includes those who sell us out, who do us wrong, who keep us down, who look different, who think different, and who vote different. Prejudice is a huge cactus in our lives. It's a huge cactus in our culture, in our world. But I want to submit to you that in all of us personally, it is also a cactus in our lives. Many of us, including myself, aren't aware of the subtle prejudices that we have. And we all have them because we're all human. And to make it more complicated, we have many ways of doing gymnastics to get out of the call to love our neighbor, especially the prickly neighbors or the neighbors who challenge us or the neighbors who trigger us or the neighbors who exhaust us. We spend great energy justifying our hierarchies of merit and preference. And the result is that we as people, we as human beings, are bent by prejudice. This week's lesson from Jesus confronts us with the truth that there is no room to elevate ourselves above others or to exempt ourselves from showing mercy to those we come across. Now, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus reveals the cactus of prejudice in our lives, and he invites us to become people of love, just like him. And the process is crushing. We, now, we are three weeks into the season of Lent, and Lent's a season of sober and humble, many times painful reflection. And the theme that we're walking in this Lent is hug your cactus. Hug your cactus. It's a cute way of saying, admit you have a problem and face it. Now, if you missed the first week where we explained in full what hug your cactus means and where the saying comes from, I wanna encourage you to go and check out the first message in this. It's very important that you get on the same page. We often run from the painful parts of our lives. I know I do, and I know I have. A great danger in that is we can inadvertently regulate or shut down the very nature of who we are because we are afraid of the cactus in front of us. As humans, we tend to pose and pretend 
We put on all kinds of makeup and costumes, usually religious, to keep from facing reality and facing the cactus. We're really good at blaming others. We're good at blame shifting. We're good at gaslighting. We ignore it. We refuse to live in reality. I mean, this is why God has come in the flesh in Jesus, right? One of the reasons. The, the wonderful thing about God is that he gives us space and time and often allows us to run from the pain and suffering and our sin in our life. It's one of the great gifts of God that he gives us space and time. We see this constantly in the life of Jesus. But at some point, we have to face the music, so to speak. And one of the surprising delights that I found is that God's presence is there in the pain in special ways. God's present in the pain. And his gracious and kind approach to us is often what we need, and it's not always what we expect. Sometimes we're surprised by the grace and the kindness of our God. And so today, I hope and I intend for you to be surprised by the grace and the truth that we find in Christ Jesus, our living hope. If you have a Bible, let's go to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. We call this parable, the parable of the Good Samaritan. But I wanna highlight for you that Jesus doesn't call it a parable. It, it could be, but Jesus doesn't specifically call it a parable. The publishers call it a parable. Some think that this was actually a real account that happened and that Jesus used a real event to illustrate his point. So regardless, this is a story where a Jew, presumably, is loved by an, quote, enemy. And this, quote, enemy does not consider the inconvenience or the physical risk or the monetary cost or the potential ingratitude or the ongoing obligation. This enemy using air quotes, sees the need and he simply responds. And the point Jesus is making is that neighbors show mercy to neighbors without qualification or justification. And of course, we're here talking about this because there is a cactus there is a stronghold. There is sin that often gets in the way of us loving our neighbor and being a neighbor to those in our community, those in our life, those in our church, even those in our family. Verse 25 says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, 
watch the legal imagery there. A lawyer stood up to put him to the test, to put him on trial, basically, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Now, here's what's fascinating. If the story ended there, it would be a very cute and nice story or account. The lawyer puts Jesus to the test, asks him a question, Jesus responds with a question, which is often what he does. And the lawyer, I miss this, answers the question correctly. But in verse 29, there's more. But, but he, the lawyer, you catch the motive here, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, and here's the parable or the story or the real event. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest, one of the good guys, was going down that road. And when he saw him, notice the word saw, he passed by on the other side. So, likewise, a Levite, also a good guy, when he came to the place and saw him, notice the word saw again, he passed by on the other side. But, here's the twist, a Samaritan, one of the bad guys, so in their mind, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, notice the repetition, that they all saw this. He had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. That's the end of the story. Here's Jesus' question. Which of these three do you think 
proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Hear the word of our Lord. One of the great challenges we have in understanding this teaching and and honestly, a lot of the Bible's teaching is we have no firsthand cultural intelligence to help us see just how controversial this story is or even how, um, how different other stories are. We bring American lenses to the scriptures. Most of us probably don't have firsthand knowledge of how the ancient Jews and Samaritans interacted with each other and viewed each other. I'm guessing most of us, if not all of us, are 21st century, for sure, post, postmodern, Western Americans who live in a digital age. Our context, geographically and racially and ethnically and culturally, is different than this one. And so we have a challenge in understanding just how sharp this parable or story teaching is. The the Jews, the, the first century Jews for sure, had issues with the Samaritans in at least two areas, and there could be more, but I want to highlight two that I see and that I've uncovered. The first is obvious. There was racial prejudice. Okay? The, the Samaritans were Gentiles. And to go further, they, were, they weren't just Gentiles. They were mixed-race Gentiles at that. Okay? Now, a Gentile is first century language for someone who's not Jewish, right? I'm not Jewish, so I'm a Gentile. And if you're not Jewish um, or don't come from Jewish descent, you're a Gentile, right? And so anybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile. The second prejudice, often not explained, is a religious prejudice. The Samaritans had other views of multiple gods. They had different views of worship. They had different theology. And they did not accept or practice full Orthodox Judaism. So the first century religious Jew would have great prejudice and offense against anyone in Samaria for racial reasons and religious reasons. That's just how it was. Now you get a little hint of this in John 4 when Jesus is with the woman at the well. She's flabbergasted that a male Jewish teacher is even speaking to her, a Samaritan woman. And as Jesus starts to get close to her pain with his questions, she changes the subject with a religious question, which is something we often do. When, when it gets too close to home, we want to ask a religious question. Well, what about this? What about this? She asks which mountain they should worship on because that's the hot debate in the, in the day between the two camps. And Jesus responds, the classic, the Father's looking for worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. We often miss that that bumper sticker Christian slogan comes in the context of a Samaritan bringing to a Jew a question often debated in the context of religious prejudice and disagreement. 
That's what's kind of inherent in here. Years ago, I was at a conference in Austin, and the conference was uh, The Verge. And uh, I met a guy there. I didn't meet him. I heard him. Um, was introduced to him. His name's Dr. John Perkins. He was there teaching. Perkins is an American Christian minister, a civil rights activist, a Bible teacher, a best-selling author, a philosopher, and a community de developer. He, he's kind of bored. And his story is amazing. I highly encourage you to learn about uh, Dr. Perkins if you've never heard about him or the work that he's contributed to the church. He was born in 1930, and he's currently 91. Now, at this conference, he, he, he sat down the whole time on the stage. And he talked very calmly, and uh, he spoke about the Good Samaritan. And he did so in a way that only a black man who grew up in a sharecropping family on a southern plantation could. He grew up without a father, and his mother died of malnutrition when he was seven months old. Let that sink in. He reads this story very differently than I ever did. And he said something to the crowd there, very striking to illustrate how scandalous it was for Jesus to tell a story where he called a Samaritan good. We often don't understand that the title of this parable or the story of this account is an oxymoron in the Jewish mind. You would never use the words good and Samaritan together in the same sentence. Perkins said, and I'm quoting, if Jesus were to come to Alabama in 1960 and teach this story, he wouldn't call it the Good Samaritan. He'd call it the Good Negro. The room was silent for about a minute. It was the first time that I felt the sharp thrust of this teaching from Jesus, simply because Perkins contextualized it using a form of the N-word which made everyone uncomfortable. It was jarring to me then, and it's jarring to me now, and it's probably jarring to you, it should be. And I think that his observation reveals how universal this is, how every place and every people have a cactus of prejudice that the God of love seeks to confront and remove. Now, one great exercise on this is to think of different times and places where Christ might teach this. It really helps us grow. For example, if Jesus were to go to Portland, Oregon right now, he may teach this and call it the good conservative Republican. Or if he went to Tyler, Texas, he would teach this as the good Prius-driving, tofu-eating liberal. And it would get the point across. If he was in New York City in September of 2001, after 9-11, he might teach this and call it the good Afghan. If he taught this in the Bible Belt, he might teach it as the good agnostic. If Christ were in Turkey, he'd teach it and call it the good Armenian. 
right? He would show up and he would be aware of whatever their prejudice is. And then he would tell the story as a counter to it, to reveal how they actually love their neighbor or not. How's that? So let's go through this. It starts with a question. A lawyer stands up and puts Jesus to the test. And Luke paints a scene of Jesus being put on trial, which is hilarious, putting God on trial. We do the same today. The lawyer asks, what is probably a heartfelt question, and it's a question we all ask, how do I get full life? And sometimes we read eternal life to mean going to heaven when you die. But most agree that this request for eternal life is not about a post-life fire insurance. He's asking how to have a full life for the ages, which would be a better interpretation of the phrase eternal life, full life for the ages, now and after. He's asking how to have a full life for the ages right now and later. And Jesus answers him with, with, a, with a typical response. And it's a technical response to a technical person who's asking a technical question because he's, he, he's a lawyer. He asks the lawyer how he reads the law. And what's fascinating is the lawyer answers correctly. He says, in essence, to love God fully and to love your neighbor. Love God and love people. And Jesus says he's answered right. But it doesn't end there. It's not the end of the story. The lawyer keeps going and he shows his true cards and he reveals his prejudice. He reveals the cactus. And he doubles back for clarification. And what's fascinating is he returns to the love your neighbor part, not the love your God part. Let that sink in, that his question is not a, really even a doctrine question. It's not even a, uh, how do I love God question? It's, how does that actually work out in a relation on the horizontal plane? How does me loving God translate into loving my neighbor? This should arrest us. What was it that caused this lawyer to question the second commandment, not the first? Now in verse 29, Luke explicitly highlights that he's trying to justify himself, that that's the motive behind continuing this conversation with Jesus. Now, in other words, he's trying to dodge the issue of his prejudice. He's trying to dodge the issue of, of uh, getting out of having to hug his cactus and deal with it. Now what's important to know is that the religious rulers and the teachers of the law, this group the lawyer was a part of, they wrote that, and, and they taught this, that Gentiles, non-Jews, were not your neighbor. His belief, the group he ran with, their doctrine was Gentiles aren't our neighbors. They're under the curse of God. They're not our neighbors. Therefore, the law to love your neighbor in Leviticus 19.18 didn't need to be applied to the love of Gentiles. That is not an assumption. This is how they wrote it. They literally said, love God, love Jews, don't love the Gentile. They aren't your neighbor. This is what was taught. This is what was written down. When the lawyer doubles back to revisit and clarify who his neighbor is, what is behind the clarifying question is a lot of individual and 
systemic prejudice in the church. And in case you missed it, we should note that this system that he's a part of is religious. And they actually worked into their doctrine, you don't need to love Gentiles. You can read Acts and see how there's so much conflict between the gospel going from the Jews to the Gentiles and where Peter and Paul start to butt heads. It's because of this. I mean, it's right there in Acts if, if, you, if, you, if, you, if you could see it. I believe that this is why Jesus tells such a sharp and controversial story. Jesus' response to him via the Good Samaritan is very sharp and is aimed at exposing the individual and the systemic religious prejudice that is baked into their system. The setting here is Jericho. I've never been to Jericho um, most of you probably haven't been to Jericho. In verse 30, it says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And geographically, this is true. Jerusalem is at a higher altitude than Jericho. And that is why the Psalms of Ascent are called the Psalms of Ascent because you literally ascend geographically and then you would think also you would ascend spiritually when you go up to the holy city, right? Additionally, in the ancient Jewish mind, Jericho was definitely not a holy city like Jerusalem, but it was believed to have been cursed by God going back as far as the book of Joshua. You see, like the, if you know Joshua and that story, you see how, where, where Jericho fits in with Jerusalem and, and, and the, the dynamics there. Um, religiously speaking, Jericho was no no land. And people looked down on Jericho both geographically and spiritually. And despite that sentiment, what's ironic is that Jericho became a common place for priests and Levites. Levites were those who were trained to be priests. Um, it's where they dwelled. And so while, while, while the religious system looked down upon Jericho and, and thought it was cursed and that it was no-no land, it's often where priests and Levites lived. And so this is why we see them traveling to and fro on this road in the story. They're not just on a walk. They're either going to work in Jerusalem or they're coming back from work. Their work being religious work. You know, they would live in, in Jericho and then commute to the holy city. Uh, Jericho was not just no-no land, okay? Jericho was dangerous. Uh, Jericho became a very uh, tricky place to live and to travel to because of thieves and robbery. Now, I want to read you an analysis of Jericho um, from a theologian and a pastor named G. Campbell Morgan, who mostly ministered in London. And there's some of the words he used in this are hot button words today, but I'd like for you to note that he wrote these words in 1943, okay? A minister in London, he pastored Westminster Chapel, wrote this in 1943, what is that, 80 years ago? There we are face to face with the story, a road about 15 to 20 miles long connecting the city of privilege with the city of commerce as it was then, unsafe for travelers and yet traversed by religious people. I present that to all social workers. The road had no business to be unsafe. 
what had they done? They had done nothing. It may be they had attempted to exterminate these robbers, but had failed, had tried hard to drive them from their lurking places, and had failed. That is the road Jesus showed. It was quite familiar to the law, and perhaps with a great deal of trepidation used by travelers, except perhaps by priests and Levites, who were preserved, and I would add in here, protected, by the superstition of their calling. It's fascinating that Jesus tells a story about a real dangerous road where the only safe people on the road are clergy because of the superstition of the robbers and the kind of the belief that if you mess with the clergy, God's going to strike you. And so the safest people on this road have a privilege because of their job, because of their, their collar or their vestments. And both of them in the story see the harm. They see the wound. They see the tragedy. But they go out of their way and pass by on the other side and absolve themselves of responsibility. The Samaritan is the unlikely hero of the story. The Samaritan is on the road and is actually in true danger himself or herself. The Samaritan isn't protected by the, by the aura of being clergy. He's here by design to defy and confront the prejudice of those listening in. The clergy, the guys in my line of work, see the man half dead. But it's the Samaritan. It's, it's, it's the half-breed. It's the other ethnic race that is looked down upon. It's, it's the person without the right orthodoxy in their minds, not the clergy, that sees and has compassion and does something. The Samaritan goes to him and binds his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Oil in the scripture is usually a symbol of the anointing of the spirit, and wine is usually a symbol of joy. And if you squint at this parable, you can see the Samaritan, who's of, quote, the wrong race and of the wrong theological camp, is bringing the Holy Spirit and joy to a tragedy. And he takes him and he sets him in an inn, basically a first century Airbnb, and he pays the bill. At the beginning, the lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus asked in response, who proved to be a neighbor? In other words, asking who your neighbor is is the wrong question. You should ask, who are you a neighbor to? The lawyer may be prejudiced, but he wasn't dumb. He got it. He said the true neighbor was the one who showed mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Jesus taught in the Beatitudes, blessed are the merciful, 
for they shall receive mercy. In other words, blessed are those who see hurt, have compassion, and do something about it, for they will receive the same. God is rich. God is filthy rich. You know what he's rich in? He's rich in mercy. Ephesians 2 is my favorite text describing salvation. And with the Good Samaritan in mind, you can see how Jesus acts like a Good Samaritan to us. Ephesians 2 says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Kind of like this man who was on the road from Jericho to Jerusalem and was left for half dead in this place of walking Spiritually, we were dead. We were ransacked by the robbers of sin and by the robbers of hell, and we were left for dead on this road to and from Jerusalem. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, that's bad news. But God, but God, being rich in mercy, rich in mercy, filthy rich in mercy. I hate saying the word filthy to God, but you get the point. He is overwhelmingly, that'd be a better word, overwhelmingly rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were on the road left for dead by sin, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And he raised us up with him and he seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just like the Good Samaritan raised up this man and seated him on his donkey or his, his animal and brought him and set him in a place of safety to find care. Christ does the same for you and me. He comes to us while we are half dead or dead on the road and he picks us up. And he sets us in heavenly places and he tends to our wounds with the spirit and with joy. He brings the, the ointment and the wine. I love how the Good Samaritan is just ripe with this image of the gospel. Going back to Ephesians, he, he does this so that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us who are in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not by your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works. So then no one can boast, for we are his workmanship. We are his masterpiece, Eugene Peterson says, created in Christ Jesus for good works, for loving our neighbor, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So that we should walk on the Jericho roads and extend the same love and mercy to others, our neighbors, that we receive from God. 
Later in Ephesians 2, Paul talks straight to the Gentiles and describes how they were once far off, but through Christ, they have been brought near and that Christ has destroyed and broken down the dividing wall of hostility between two. He, Christ has destroyed and broken down the real prejudices between the two. You see, if there's anyone in the world who could naturally face their cactus and face their prejudice and give it to God, it should be followers of Jesus. We have a vision for this theologically. It is part of our gospel. We have been shown great mercy when we were dead on the road. Like the good Samaritan, Christ came to us and he saw us and he had compassion on us and he had mercy on us and he brought oil and wine to our wounds and he picked us up and he set us in his heavenly home, paying the cost the entire way. If anybody should be loving neighbors, it should be us. Because we love, as the scriptures say, because it was first God who loved us. We have mercy on others because it was first God who had mercy for us. We give peace to others because it was first God who gave peace to us. This is what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. This is what it means to be caught up in the business of the kingdom of God. This is what it means to be in the ministry of reconciliation that God has given us, as Corinthians says. And we all have cacti that get in the way of doing that. So here's some homework for you. How would Jesus tell this story to you? If Jesus were to show up and answer your questions about how do you get a life for the ages, a, a, a heaven in your life now and heaven in your life later. How would Jesus tell this story to you? What type of person or people group would he place after the word good to get your attention? Would he tell the parable of the good person of color or the good Black Lives Matter protester? Would he tell this as the parable of the good cop or the good police officer? Now we're talking. Would he tell this story to you and, and talk to you about the good politician? That one's hard for me. I'm having a hard time putting the word good and any politician together. Would he tell the story to you and, and, and talk to you about the good Republican? Or the good Trump supporter? Would he tell the story to you and call it the good Democrat? The good liberal? Would he tell the story to you and call it the good pastor? I know people in, in my position and sometimes I've done it as well, have caused great harm to the people of God. And sometimes Jesus might come to us and confront the pain and even confront the bias and the prejudice and talk to us about the good pastor or the good celebrity pastor 
or in these days, the good celebrity apologist and evangelist that confronts me. Would he tell the story to you about the good boomer? If you're young and frustrated with the older generation, would he tell you the story about the good boomer who did the right thing and had mercy? Or would it be the good Gen Xer? Or if you are in an older generation, would he come to you and, and tell you a story about the good millennial <laughs> or the good digital native or whatever we're calling the next generation? You, you get the point. We all have an other that is prickly and that we don't want the word good associated with. And that reveals our prejudice towards them. It reveals the opportunity to not just love our neighbor, but to include our enemy, whether real or imagined, in that definition of neighbor. The question is not who is your neighbor, the question is, who are you a neighbor to? Is God calling you to be a neighbor to that Republican or, or is God calling you to be a neighbor to that Democrat? You get the point. Is there an ounce of prejudice in your life? And does that cactus show up for you? It does for me. Hi, my name's Drew. I have a cactus in my life, and I want Jesus to deal with it. Heavenly Father, we give all these things to you. We realize this is hard because of our flesh, because of the world, because of the kingdom of hell. Oh, how we need you. We invite you to come in your kindness, in your grace, not just with your grace, but also with your truth. We ask Holy Spirit for you to shine light and to reveal any part of us that has prejudice, that has judgment or condemnation or criticism or even flat out racism or even how we look down upon those who don't believe like us in other areas. Maybe even how we look down upon those who are more wealthier than us or poorer than us. Lord, forgive us of all the ways in which we maneuver ourselves against others. God, we invite you to reveal all of the cacti in our life so that we might find ultimate freedom and liberation from sin in you. That you might show the world the immense richness of your love. 
God, for those watching and listening who feel it in the pit of their stomach, And I pray you would make your presence known to them right now. And you would help them to understand and feel that your presence is a safe place to hide in and to come clean in. We give you everything and we give you everyone. And God, finally, for those watching or listening who are on that proverbial Jericho road spiritually, and they have been beat, they have been robbed, they have been hurt. But I pray you would come to them with your oil and with your wine, and you would send the right neighbors, the right followers of Jesus, even those who defy our expectations, to come with you and to bring the oil of your spirit and the wine of your spirit. But we pray for those who are hearing the gospel message that you would do that work in their heart, that you would bring a birth from above, that you would raise to life those who are dead spiritually. Lord, I pray that you would continue to author faith in our midst and that you would continue to perfect that faith in our midst. We ask this in the holy and precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.